General Steve Ritchie is our nation's only ace fighter pilot in Vietnam, but he had several near misses when he barely made it back home. My first tour, I took a 37 millimeter through the right engine. It was armor piercing. It had been high explosive. The airplane would have blown up and I'd have flown into the ground. There's a time where I probably should have died and I didn't. The American Veterans Center protects the legacy and honors the sacrifice of America's veterans, but it's up to you to keep their story alive. To hear the rest of General Ritchie's story, go to AmericanVeteransCenter.org. That's AmericanVeteransCenter.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you that the show is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Their website is aianimals.org. Check them out, see what you think, and consider donating if you like what you see and you want to help support the ongoing production of the show. And you can listen to any of our prior shows by going to our website, animalstodayradio.com, and you can also subscribe on iTunes and be able to listen on your mobile device. Saturday, August 20th is World Mosquito Day. That's today. World Mosquito Day was first established in 1897 when the link between mosquitoes and malaria transmission was discovered by Sir Ronald Ross. And because today is World Mosquito Day, I thought we'd talk a bit about mosquitoes. Now, if you listen to the news at all, you probably know we're still fighting against diseases that are transmitted by mosquitoes. And I'm going to talk about the Zika virus disease in a few minutes, because that's the one everyone's talking about now. But it's interesting that here we are more than a century later, and malaria is still one of the most severe public health problems worldwide and the leading cause of death and disease in many developing countries. Now, here's just a few facts about malaria, according to the World Health Organization. Malaria is a life-threatening disease caused by parasites that are transmitted to people through the bites of infected female Anopheles mosquitoes. In 2015, 95 countries and territories had ongoing malaria transmission. About 3.2 billion people, almost half of the world's population, are at risk of malaria. Sub-Saharan Africa carries a disproportionately high share of the global malaria burden. In 2015, the region was home to 88% of malaria cases and 90% of malaria deaths. Individuals at higher risk of contracting malaria and developing more severe disease include infants, children under five years of age, pregnant women, and patients with HIV or AIDS, as well as non-immune migrants, mobile populations, and travelers. Now, let's go back in time a bit and talk about the history of the pesticide DDT, because as you might know, it was widely used decades ago in the U.S. and Europe to fight against malaria. In addition, the use of DDT was and still is highly controversial. DDT, or dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, was created in 1874 by a German chemist, but at the time, it wasn't found to be an effective insecticide. And it wasn't until 1939 when its usefulness to attack pests like mosquitoes was discovered by Swiss chemist Paul Mueller. In fact, Mueller won the 1948 Nobel Prize, quote, for his discovery of the high efficiency of DDT as a contact poison against several arthropods. So this was right around the time of World War II. And because DDT is a pesticide, it was widely used in agriculture. But it also had huge public health achievements. For example, during World War II, there was an epidemic typhus, which was spread by the human body lice. Typhus killed thousands of prisoners in the Nazi German concentration camps, and DDT, being a pesticide, would kill the lice and was used to de-louse people who were liberated from the German death camps. We also use DDT to prevent disease in our soldiers, since our U.S. servicemen in Europe were also infected by lice. And as I mentioned, DDT was used against malaria. And in 1955, the U.S. employed anti-malaria programs and widely used DDT in the U.S. and Europe. That pretty much wiped out malaria by killing the mosquitoes that carried the disease. Now, in 1962, author and environmentalist Rachel Carson came out with her book, Silent Spring, which talked about the disastrous effect of DDT upon wildlife and pretty much blamed environmental destruction on pesticides such as DDT. Silent Spring, the, the title of her book, implying that the 
birds are dying off because they are being killed by DDT, so spring would be silent since the birds would not be singing. She also claimed that there was a link between DDT and the significantly reduced populations of the bald eagle, and birds that had ingested the DDT were found to lay eggs with thinned eggshells, and these unhealthy, diseased shells would not allow many eaglets to survive and thrive, and thus that accounted for the plummeting eagle population. Well, this book started freaking people out about DDT, right? I mean, DDTs destroy nature, fish, our wildlife, birds, it's harming humans. And pretty much because of her claims in the book, along with air and water pollution running rampant at the time, the environmental movement was born and triggered the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. And guess what? One of the first acts of the EPA was to ban DDT. So in 1972, DDT was banned in the U.S. It was also banned in many other countries. It's still used in some developing countries today. Now, this ban set in motion a major controversy. On the one hand, you got those who thought that DDT was just the greatest thing because it helped fight off disease and people, and this ban would be a death sentence to millions of people. And on the other hand, you have those who thought banning DDT was the right thing because it was hurting the environment and possibly hurting people as well because it's a pesticide. And I'll tell you, 44 years later, after the ban, the controversy continues. And especially now, because we're still dealing with other mosquito-borne or transmitted illnesses like West Nile virus, and we're in the midst of a Zika virus crisis. One of the outspoken individuals calling for the DDT ban to be lifted so we can start using DDT to fight against the Zika virus is Dr. Jane Orient. Dr. Jane Orient is the executive director of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons and is a member of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Dr. Orient claims that the Zika virus is the result of the DDT ban, and it's time to end the ban so we can use it as an effective weapon against the disease. She attributes the 1972 DDT ban to environmental hysteria triggered by events like Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. She thinks there are many problems with the book, including presenting flawed and inaccurate evidence that DDT was harmful to the environment. The book alleged that DDT was a carcinogen. Dr. Rain says that the pesticide DDT has never been proven to be harmful to humans. It does not cause Alzheimer's or, or cancer, as the book or many would claim. And she says the evidence showing DDT was thinning bald eagle eggshells was flawed. The environmentalists and supporters of the ban would claim that DDT was killing off the peregrine falcon and caused it to be a threatened species. But Dr. Orient argued that wasn't true. The peregrine falcon was threatened because people were shooting them. I also read somewhere that the book claims that because of DDT, the robin was, quote, on the verge of extinction. And Carson ignored the Audubon Society's annual bird count, which showed there were no fewer birds in the years prior to her writing her book. So we know DDT reduced the number of deaths caused by yellow fever, malaria, and other mosquito-borne illnesses. Dr. Orion states that DDT was credited with saving 500 million or half a billion human lives, and it was the most effective weapon against malaria ever. And millions of people die in poor countries everywhere because of the DDT ban. So her point is, here we are in the midst of a Zika crisis, and instead of lifting the DDT ban so we can use the pesticide to fight this disease off, we're telling people, okay, do what you can to avoid mosquito bites. Use insect repellent, wear long sleeve clothing, apply mosquito repellent, don't get pregnant, and we're spending millions of dollars aggressively pursuing a potential vaccine to combat the Zika virus. And yet we're refusing to employ DDT to deal with this problem. Furthermore, she says, why work on a vaccine that will be very expensive and perhaps not effective when you can use this inexpensive, safe, and effective means, DDT, which is out there and available, which can kill many diseases by killing the carrier itself, the mosquito. Now let's talk about Zika, which we are hearing so much about these days. What is the Zika virus disease? Well, it's carried by the Aedes aegypti mosquito, Symptoms of the Zika virus disease are not so bad. You might experience fever, rash, joint pain, red eyes, lasting anywhere from two to seven days, so not, not too big of a deal. 
and Zika has likely not killed anyone yet, but we're learning it can cause birth defects. The Zika virus has been found in the brain of a few babies born with microcephaly, which means small head. This doesn't mean when a baby is born with a small head, he or she is infected with the Zika virus, and most cases of microcephaly are not due to Zika, and most mothers who have been infected with Zika during pregnancy give birth to non-deformed, normal, healthy babies, but it does put the mother's babies at risk for a devastating birth defect. And it seems that Brazil has been hit pretty hard by the Zika virus. And right now, as you know, there are tens of thousands of people from around the world in Brazil for the Olympic Games, which is interesting to think about because when they return back to their home countries, is that potentially going to pose more of a Zika problem elsewhere and here in the U.S.? And just a couple of weeks ago, it was confirmed that in one of our U.S. cities, Miami, Florida, a dozen or so cases of Zika were confirmed in people infected by local mosquitoes. And when's the last time you heard a State Department of Public Health warning people, specifically women who are pregnant or want to become pregnant, to temporarily avoid traveling to certain neighborhoods in the U.S., i.e. Miami? So here we are. Today, August 20th, is World Mosquito Day, which is a commemoration of Sir Ronald Ross's discovery in 1897 that mosquitoes transmit malaria. We have thousands of African babies dying every day from malaria. DDT is currently being used in more than a dozen countries worldwide to control mosquitoes rather than to treat crops as was done decades ago. And where it's used, it's done selectively, including spraying on the inside walls of dwellings, which is very effective. Approximately 1,500 to 2,000 cases of malaria reported every year in the United States, almost all in recent travelers. So malaria is alive and a worldwide problem and killing human lives worldwide. And now right here in the U.S., we're trying to manage other potentially major mosquito-borne illnesses, Zika. But as you can tell, the use of DDT is so politically polarizing that I personally doubt we'll see its use in the U.S. unless there's a major epidemic of microcephalic babies caused by the virus right here. And even then, whether DDT really would be the best agent in terms of risk-benefit calculations make for a really hot public health debate. And all I can say, if Zika gets big in the U.S., the DDT controversy will be reignited for better or worse, big time. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. More of Animals Today right after the break. And now, the lens of liberty. Here's Helen Kriebel. My home county has a thick notebook called the General Erosion and Sediment Control Plan, which supposedly dictates how all new construction should handle water runoff. But not all new construction causes erosion. We were actually required by these rules to cut the roots of an entire row of trees and place plastic erosion fencing in the ground. First, there was no erosion there at all. And second, had there been, trees are nature's most perfect way to control it. Instead of relying on thick notebooks of regulations, we ought to look through the lens of liberty and remember that every situation is different. Instead of applying punitive and costly government rules, we need to apply common sense. Go to lensofliberty.org. You won't believe what you hear. General Steve Ritchie is our nation's only ace fighter pilot in Vietnam, but he had several near misses when he barely made it back home. My first tour, I took a 37 millimeter through the right engine. It was armor piercing. It had been high explosive. The airplane would have blown up and I'd have flown into the ground. There's a time where I probably should have died, and I didn't. The American Veterans Center protects the legacy and honors the sacrifice of America's veterans, but it's up to you to keep their story alive. To hear the rest of General Ritchie's story, go to AmericanVeteransCenter.org. That's AmericanVeteransCenter.org. The Safety Oath. Repeat after me. I will safely bring safety to my facility and keep it safe. I will safely keep my people safe. I will put safety first in everything I do, and I will safely do so with Granger. When you think safety, think Granger. Granger's got over 100,000 safety products to help keep our facility safe and our people safer. When it comes to safety, Granger's got your back. Call clickgranger.com/safety. 
or stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the show. So it's World Mosquito Day today, August 20th, and we've been talking about mosquitoes. You know, when I was 12 years old, my parents took the family, my two older brothers and younger sister, myself, to South Africa on a photographic safari. And now a little over a few decades later, the primary memories I have of that trip are are not so pleasant. I mean, it's not like I don't appreciate the fact that I was fortunate enough to be able to experience such an exotic vacation. I mean, how many children get to take a trip to Africa? And me being an animal person, one would think that I must have some wonderful memories of that trip, but too bad, I don't. First of all, we had to take chloroquine or one of the preventative oral medications for malaria. Wow, I'm telling you, it gave me terrible dreams. I mean, I remember waking up in the middle of the night screaming and terrified. I know now what I had experienced was likely a side effect from the medication, but at the time, I just thought I was losing my mind. But probably the biggest unpleasant memory was during one of the day safari trips where you're supposed to go look for animals and admire their beauty. So we're with one of these guided African safari tours, and the 40 or so people included in this group are split up in four or five safari jeeps, and we're out looking for wild animals. And each jeep tour leader has his own walkie-talkie so they can communicate with one another if one spots an elephant or a giraffe or whatever. They can notify the other jeep guides to come over where the animal was spotted so everyone can get relatively close and take pictures and feel special. Well... One of the jeeps spotted a tiger on the prowl for food. And nearby, there was a little gazelle. And do you know what a gazelle is? It looks like a a deer with long horns. They're, They're beautiful. Just the sweet face of a deer. And this tiger was eyeing and slowly and quietly patrolling this gazelle. So the guide person, walkie talkie, the other four or five jeep drivers to come over because we're about to witness a kill. So everyone's all excited and the five drivers are approaching and they strategically place their Jeeps, forming a very large circle surrounding and trapping this gazelle in with the tiger in the same confined area in order to assist with this kill. So mind you, this is not nature. This is not the natural circle of life. We are enabling what's about to happen here. And everyone in my Jeep, including my siblings and my parents, are so excited and rooting for the tiger. And it was like supposed to be the coolest thing in the world if you could say, I witnessed a kill in Africa. And I'm sitting there screaming and crying because I didn't appreciate what was about to happen. And the guide and people in the Jeep are getting mad at me because you're supposed to talk in a whisper as to not scare the animals. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and I turn my back and close my eyes and put my hands over my ears And it happened. The tiger pounces on and rips the gazelle apart. We witnessed a kill. An unnatural kill, which we facilitated. And everyone is cheering and taking pictures and and thinking they just saw the best thing ever. And I'm sitting there absolutely hysterical and mad. I mean, my brothers, okay, I can understand. But the adults on the safari tour, ecstatic to what just happened. Yes, I know I'm an extreme individual when it comes to animals, but I don't think I was back then. And come on. I remember thinking, what the heck is wrong with these people? And ignore the 12-year-old girl who's crying her heart out hysterically and might likely be mentally scarred for the rest of her life. No, let's just make sure we witness the mutilation of this beautiful animal, which we participated in. So that's my memory. And 40 years later, I'm still mad about that. Now, I hear uh, Africa safaris today are nothing like they were back then. And what happened then would never be allowed to happen today. And these organized groups really go out of their way to protect the animals and their surroundings, but still would would not go back. That experience just ruined it for me forever. What else? Um, I remember everyone wanting to eat an exotic animal for dinner. Like everyone thought it was so cool to be able to taste what a buffalo tastes like or zebra tastes like. Even my parents would say, Lori, this is your one opportunity to try a giraffe. 
No, thank you. I have no desire to eat the same beautiful animals we're trying to appreciate and admire on our safari. And now, of course, as you probably know, I'm vegan and been so for a number of years. I should ask my parents if they really think I feel badly for missing that opportunity to eat African animals. A memory my brothers remind me of on occasion is when I really had to go relieve my bladder during one of our safari tours. I mean, we're in the middle of the jungle, but I had to go. So the driver stopped the Jeep, pointed his finger and told me to go there. And he pointed toward the toward this little bush. So thinking this guy must know the area and he, he must know that I'd be safe stepping out of the Jeep and that some animal's not going to sneak up behind me and eat me. And my parents are with me and I know they wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. So I get out of the Jeep and walk behind this bush and squat. And in the middle of relieving myself, my brothers, 14 and 16 years old at the time, thought it would be cute and funny to scream out, Lori, watch out, run, there's a lion right behind you. So I take off running for my life back to the Jeep before completing my business. Yes, it's a memory I wish I could forget. And I'm sure I provided a great story for the other members of our tour group to tell when they get back home. Okay, Lori, that was very interesting. Thank you for sharing that with me after all these years of marriage. I'm still learning little tidbits about your former life. So that was uh, pretty interesting. And even so, I'd like to, I'd like to go to... Africa someday for a, a photographic safari. That's what you were on, a photographic safari, right? And uh, even though they did that, you know, stage kill maneuver that you, you described, but, you know, most of the ecotourism business these days involves photographic safaris, which certainly satisfies most, uh, quote unquote, normal people. And yet uh, trophy hunting, unfortunately, still is legal for many animals in many parts of Africa. The latest... Uh, celebrity in, in this arena is a 12-year-old girl from Utah. Her name is Ariana Gordon, and she, of course, comes from a hunting family. And uh, recently, after a safari to Africa where they are shooting and killing giraffe and zebras and I think a wildebeest, and she's posing with them, I really encourage you to look at her Facebook page, which is called Braids and Bows. And so her name is Ariana, A-R-Y-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, Gordon, G-O-U-R-D-I-N. She is 12, and uh, she is a full-fledged uh, hunter and also is a bow hunter. And she is, like we've seen before, proudly and happily posing next to leaning on these uh, dead animals with such pride. And it is, it is just so disturbing uh, to me that she just has no insight into, into what she's doing. She posted some things that are the, the typical uh, fallacies and fantasies related to uh, illegal trophy hunting, such as, quote, just because someone chooses to display their trophies doesn't make them a bad person. It represents memories. And she also writes that uh, hunting endangered species is actually one of the only things helping them today. She says, I've never personally witnessed anyone I've been hunting with Take a shot unless they know with 100% certainty that it will be a one-shot kill. That is nonsense. That's not to say that there's not some degree of uncertainty, she continues. But I think it goes to show that hunters care about an animal's well-being. And is that the most upside-down crazy logic you've, you've ever heard? This is uh, Dr. Peter Spiegel with Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm just going to go get some fresh air outside from all of you. If you know the value of good machines, then it's high time we got together. We're Bailey Industrial, builders of metal and woodworking equipment, hardworking machines for hardworking people. Because better equipment means better work and getting more done. And keeping you working is what we do best. We stand behind our equipment and make sure our equipment stands behind you. Offering you the after-sale support you need to keep your shop running smoothly, which means making sure you have what you need when you need it. Typically shipping within 72 hours or less. 
So whether you're a hobbyist or a seasoned professional on deadline, go to bailey.com now and we'll send you a catalog. That's right, friend. Over 400 pages of what you love most, machines. So whatever you're looking to build, repair, or manufacture, do it with Bailey Industrial, the company you can trust to give you the equipment and service you can rely on. That's B-A-I-L-E-I-G-H. Bailey. Because if it's worth doing right, it's only right to do it with Bailey. So go to Bailey.com now and pick up your free catalog. Sorry, I was sleep texting. May have become the dog ate my homework of the digital age. I'm Dr. Borenstein, and this is Dr. Beyond Call. Doctors seeing increased sleep disorders from constant phone use say texting while asleep is on the rise. More common in teens and those who never let go of their phones, experts concur that parts of a brain controlling motor skills can wake up. Meanwhile, other parts managing memory or judgment remain asleep. Whatever the reason our unconscious mind has the upper hand in these cases from texting gibberish to outright aggressive messages one person sent a text to her boss in the middle of the night saying you're fired having a history of sleep disorders such as sleepwalking and sleep talking make you more likely to text while asleep one solution leave your phone in another room at night just be prepared for a completely different disorder separation anxiety Guys, if you've been using or wanting to try Viagra but are worried about the costs, we have great news. Now you can finally get real results at huge discounts with our Healthy Man alternative to the little blue pill. Why pay U.S. pharmacy prices of $15 per pill or more when you can get results for a fraction of the price? Call today and get 40 pills for only $99. Others cost as much as $600 at your local pharmacy. You can't afford not to call us if you want real results at the lowest prices. Never pay $15 a pill for Viagra when you can get real results for less than $3 per pill. Call 800-861-1202 today and save over $500. You can have those breathtaking, toe-curling moments again and again. Healthy Man is fast, easy, and affordable. Call right now and we'll rush you your supply delivered discreetly to your door. Just call 800-861-1202. That's 800-861-1202. Again, 800-861-1202. Honey, we need a vacation. Yeah, I'll say. No, what you need is a flavorcation. Compliments of Lay's Passport to Flavored Chips now at Subway. What? You'll be whisked around the globe with four intensely authentic tastes, like the creamy zip of great tzatziki, the spicy heat of Chinese Szechuan, and the exotic allure of tikka masala. I like exotic. Subway even has the steakhouse taste of Brazilian picanha. Lay's Passport to Flavored Chips now at Subway for a limited time only. Rev it up and bury the needle at Victory Motorcycle's Redline sales event. Get rebates up to $2,500 or payments as low as $99 a month on a new V-twin-powered Victory Motorcycle. Now is the time to own the big-wheeled Magnum Bagger or the liquid-cooled Octane, the most powerful Victory ever built. Offers valid in the U.S. and Canada, subject to credit approval, and valid on new 2014 through 2016 models and on 2017 Victory Octanes. Good through 831.16. Certain restrictions and exclusions apply. See dealer for details. Geico presents Kathy, the candid real estate agent. As you can see, this apartment has crown molding, and yes, that's a working fireplace. Can't you see yourself curling up with a good book? At least until a pipe bursts, and then you'll need to replace your brand new upholstered sofa. (laughs) That thing will soak up water like a sponge. It's hard to know all that comes with renting a home or apartment. That's why the Geico Insurance Agency makes getting covered for personal property loss and damage quick and easy. Visit geico.com and see how affordable renter's insurance can be. It's National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom.com, so it's time to take care of your will or trust. LegalZoom makes it easy. They're not a law firm, so there's no office visits or paying expensive hourly rates. Instead, you could save over $100 with LegalZoom's will or trust estate plan bundles. And if you don't know whether a will or trust is right for you, don't worry. You'll work with an independent attorney available in 48 states to get advice on what you need. Do the right thing this month at LegalZoom.com. LegalZoom.com. Welcome back to the show. Did you know that animal rescue workers are more prone to depression and suicide than the general working population? It's true. And last year, a study was published by the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, and it showed that animal rescue workers 
have a suicide rate of 5.3 per million annually. And just for comparison, the national rate for American workers is 1.5 per million. What's going on here? And how risky is it to work in the animal rescue and animal welfare fields? To discuss this, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Sandra Grossman. Dr. Grossman is a certified pet loss and bereavement counselor, and she can be reached at petlosspartners.com. So welcome, Sandra. Thank you. So the study referring to the high rate of suicide amongst people who work with animals, did that surprise you? Unfortunately, no. And I think I think it's always been there. I think it's coming to the forefront now. I think there's a lot of really caring people out there that try to do the best for animals. And in doing that, I think they've forgotten to take the time to take care of themselves because both veterinary work and um, people who work in, in the rescue and shelter communities, it's very trying work because you have, you see a lot of really sad situations with uh, people and with animals. You know, it's interesting because helpers, those of us who, who work in the helping profession, are all very vulnerable to compassion fatigue, but there's been studies done that show that people who work in the veterinary or animal care profession suffer from it more than, than other helping industries. And do we know why that might be? You know, and again, I think it goes back to the fact that we're, we're working with the animals that we work with. They can't talk to us. They can't tell us, and so it becomes up to us to be able to see what's going on. And then we see, so we see animals and we see people a lot of times at their worst point. Mm. You know, we have to see some really horrible things that happen and, and the worst of people sometimes. And then animals sometimes in the worst of conditions. Yeah. Sandra, if people are just hearing this term compassion fatigue for the first time, can you uh, define it? And how is it different from like, oh, I'm just uh, burnt out or tired? Yeah, and, and that's a good point because a lot of people kind of use the terms um, compassion fatigue or um, vicarious traumatization and burnout together, and they're not the same thing. I, I use the, when it comes to compassion fatigue, I feel that Charles Figley is kind of like the compassion fatigue guru. So I use his definition, which is it's the inner exhaustion that comes from the stress of caring for or helping others who are traumatized or suffering. And vicarious traumatization, which is that secondary PTSD, that's a little bit different in that that more comes from the stress that comes from working with victims of trauma. And so we begin to kind of like regular PTSD, we can kind of sometimes mimic the symptoms of of, of what we see and kind of really internalize them. So you'll see people with high anxiety or nightmares and they ruminate it on a lot. Compassion fatigue often is more of a long-term thing. It doesn't happen overnight. It can if there's like a, you know, 9-11 kind of thing, a traumatic event like that. But it, but there is a difference between that and the secondary um, post-traumatic stress. And then, you know, if you want to look at it at a continuum, on the left side you have stress, right, mm -hmm. your stress, then it leads to, like, compassion fatigue, you know, and, and that post-traumatic, the secondary post-traumatic stress. And then on the far right of it at the extreme is burnout. And burnout is really just the cumulative effects over that. And when you don't do anything about it, it's kind of almost too late. You know, when you get to burnout, it, it can be hard to kind of bounce back. Whereas with compassion fatigue, if you catch it in time, you can deal with it. And, and the same thing with um, secondary post-traumatic stress. So, you know, all of them, like for all of them, there's a loss of energy and a depletion and a loss of joy. But compassion fatigue is kind of like a, a factor in burnout, yeah. put it that way. Remind the listeners about Dr. Sophia Yin. She was a renowned uh, dog trainer and uh, had a really a big uh, presence and following and taught a lot of people about 
dog training, and she uh, regrettably committed suicide a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, what do we know about her particular case, and what was the uh, impact of her, her death on the understanding of this whole issue? That was really kind of a wake-up call for a lot of people. And that and, and then a few of the other suicides that occurred, occurred in a, a similar time frame. I think before that, people knew it was there, but it was pushed more under the rug. And then all of a sudden, there comes along a young woman who has really done a lot in the, term, in the field of animal behavior, and then she takes her own life. And it came really unexpectedly, and then as things came out, it was like the fact that from what I read, from what I understood, some of what she was saying was kind of being, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And then she was having to deal with personal issues as well and probably, again, wasn't taking care of herself. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I think it brought it to the forefront and and people went, wow, if she, you know, this well-known person who we thought was a leader for us and, and we thought everything was okay and now she's taking her own life. What What's happening here? And maybe we need to pay more attention to it. Yes. And now consequently, we're seeing shelters and rescue groups really implementing programs to uh, help their volunteers and employees, aren't they? You know, they're beginning to. Again, I think we, we still have a long way to go, especially, I will tell you, in in the shelters and, and, and in the rescues. I think the veterinary field is really leading the way, so to speak. I think the larger organizations, I think the task now is how do we get to the smaller rescues and, and to the, the local municipalities and give them the instruments because part of the issue when it comes especially to shelters, to municipality shelters, compassion fatigue is caused by both external factors and internal factors. So on the external side, you're dealing with partly the perception of the community right. and then the constraints of the practice. You know, so we want to do more, but I can only work so many hours, or we want to do this, but we don't have the money to. And then the perception, if it's a kill shelter, it's like, oh, my God, you guys do horrible work, even though there are really people there that are trying to do their best. They're trying to do it. It's not like anybody wants this to happen. Yeah. So when you combine that with the internal factors of like, who am I really? You know, do I take this home with me? Am I a perfectionist? And if it's not being done perfe- perfectly, I can't let that go. Am I super sensitive? Which is a lot of the uh, a lot of who helpers are. All of that really c- can get to you, and so. People working, again, I think people working at shelters, especially in municipalities, really have a tough road to hoe. Kind of thing. Yes. Sandra, what can volunteers and employees of shelters do to recognize that they are suffering and to then take action? Yeah, that's a good question. So one of the, the things, there's a few things, you know, again, Charles Figley, when he talks to about taking care, he says there's a few things. One is the awareness of it. There are certain like symptoms of compassion fatigue that are like physical symptoms or psychological or social symptoms. So the point of it is, is not like if you're feeling tired or agitated, but if you're feeling those symptoms and it's not, it's out of the ordinary. So in other words, if if all of a sudden you're always angry and you're not the kind of person who normally gets angry or you're always sad and you're not the kind of person who's always sad, it's about becoming aware of that. That's the first step to take. You know, and it could be somebody doing an intervention with you saying, you know, you don't seem like yourself or it could come from yourself. And then like there's taking some type of assessment and, and there's actually a, a really well-known scale, a compassion fatigue scale out there called the ProQual 5. And that could kind of assess where you are on the compassion fatigue spectrum. Yep. But like I, I always like to say, I think that there are things that we can do on our own. So for instance, one of the things that we always have people that we work with do is we call it a work-life pie chart. 
So if you were to take a pie and divide it up into how much time you spend on your physical needs, how much time you spend on your social needs, how much time you spend on work, how much time you spend emotionally, how much time you spend spiritually and, and interpersonally, and you break that pie up, that could be a real eye-opener if 75% of that pie is work and all the other five factors are the other, fa- are the other things. That could be even an eye-opener yeah. for you. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's just even, you know, being aware of our bodies, taking the time to just stop and say, how am I feeling? Am, am I getting enough sleep? Am I feeling okay? Is, am I aching more? Yeah. So a lot of it, you know, you could take a scale, but a lot of it you can do by yourself. Dr. Sandra Grossman, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? So you can go to our website, which is www.petlosspartners.com. You can also give me a call. It's 818-421-1516. And one of the things that we're working on right now is this idea of creating a compassionate practice, both in the veterinary field and, and in animal care. And I'd be glad to give you some information on that. I'd also be glad to give you a couple of the exercises if you want to email. Oh, that's fabulous. And you could do that. You could send an email to info at petlosspartners.com, and I'd be glad to send you information. Thanks so much, Sandra. Sure, absolutely, Peter. Um, It's a really important topic, so thank you for caring enough. This is Dr. Peter Spiegel. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm going to make my pie chart, and after the break, we've got more of the show. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. I'm Bob DiRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. During the opening ceremony of the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, supermodel Giselle Bündchen set a distinctly Brazilian tone for the Games by taking a long, sultry walk across the stage to the song, Girl from Ipanema. That song, first released in 1964, has become the second most recorded pop song in history. It made millions for the Brazilian songwriters, but the real-life girl from Ipanema who inspired them to write it didn't get a penny. After the two songwriters died, she opened a boutique in Rio and called it, can you guess? That's right, The Girl from Ipanema. That didn't sit well with the heirs of the song's creators, though. They own a trademark on the name, and they sued her. Let's be fair, they may have had a legitimate claim, but the lawsuit was strongly criticized in Brazil. The woman who inspired the famous song is widely loved in her country, and in the end, the judge ruled in her favor. Today, if you go to Rio and visit that store, you may just have a chance to meet the real girl from Ipanema. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Being there matters, and your United States Navy protects and defends America on the world's oceans. Around the globe, around the clock, Navy ships, submarines, aircraft, and most importantly, tens of thousands of America's finest young men and women are ready to defend America. When piracy threatens global commerce, when disaster strikes, or when called upon by the Commander-in-Chief, your Navy is there. When it comes to protecting and defending America, being there matters, and America's Navy is already there. In this box, we have a lidocaine pain patch. And in this box, we have what looks to be another pain patch, Blue Emu's Lidocare. Lidocare offers 4% lidocaine. It's odor-free, ultra-flexible, and it's the only non-water-based lidocaine patch. Yes, I said only. So if you'd prefer this to this... Find us at Walgreens, CVS, or Amazon. Welcome back to the show. According to the CDC, 22.5% of people in the U.S. have been infected with toxoplasmosis. Yet many or most of these people are unaware that they've had the infection. 
As you might know, cats also harbor toxoplasma, and they are the definitive host of this parasite. What do we need to know about toxoplasmosis? Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Robert Reed, who is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to talk to you again. Robert, what is toxoplasmosis? Well, it's, you know, toxoplasmosis is, for the significance of the disease, is surprisingly little known by people, even though so many people have cats and love cats, and it is so closely associated with cats. It's a disease caused by a protozoan parasite, microscopic, called Toxoplasma gondii. And it's significant with regard to cats because cats are the only definitive host for Toxoplasma, which means they're the only animals that can harbor and produce the infective form of the parasite. Okay, so explain what happens when a cat gets infected with Toxoplasmosis, and how do they get the infection anyway? The cats will acquire the infection by ingesting an animal that's infected with it or by eating raw meat that may have toxoplasma insisted in the muscle of the animal. And when a cat eats the, the organism in one of its prey, it, uh, the organism develops in the intestine into a form. It creates, it creates eggs and passes into the stool in the environment. And once in the environment, those eggs, after a day or two, become infective to anything that ingests them. That's usually a small animal, small mammal, like a mouse, but it could be uh, a bird, it could be uh, a cow or a goat or anything that's grazing on the ground. Um, and later, if another cat eats the small animal or is fed meat from a larger animal that's not been cooked, then they can develop the infection as well. Do you treat cats for toxoplasmosis? Yeah, most of the time you don't even know they have it. It's pretty unusual for a cat to have symptoms that you would notice about it uh, from toxoplasma. They sometimes will get a little bit lethargic, might get a little fever, maybe a little diarrhea, go off their food for a few days. But most of the time it's not even recognized as a disease in cats, even though it has a treatment with an antibiotic. Um, Interestingly, though, occasionally a cat will get pneumonia or some other respiratory disease or eye problems or neurologic problems as a result of toxoplasma. But you normally wouldn't test for those things unless the cat had an unusual symptom that you couldn't find another cause for. So it often passes unnoticed in the cat. And by the time the cat is recognized as having had toxoplasma, the eggs have already passed out of them into the environment. Let's talk about infections in people. How do people get toxoplasmosis, and who is at risk for problems related to toxoplasmosis? Well, that's a really good question, because as you mentioned, there are an awful lot of people that have been infected with toxoplasma, but there's not really any correlation in studies that have been performed between people who own cats and people who have toxoplasma, even though cats are often recognized is being associated with toxoplasma and in fact many times blamed for it, it's really rare for a person to get toxoplasma from a cat. Most of the time they're going to get it from eating undercooked meat or drinking unpasteurized milk, possibly eating vegetables or fruit that have not been washed properly, sometimes from digging in soil and then um, putting their hands in their mouth before they wash them thoroughly. What precautions, if any, should people take related to cats and toxoplasmosis risk? Well, the first thing, of course, is, as many people probably do know, and where they would have heard from to of toxoplasmosis, because it's the parasite, the, the disease of cats that pregnant women are warned about. Right. Because at certain stages of pregnancy, if a person is, is exposed to toxoplasma for the first time, never having had it before, then there's a potential for their developing uh, fetus to be affected by the organism. And um, that's why people are often cautioned not to change litter boxes or handle cat stool during pregnancy. Um, the risk is small, but it is a general recommendation to avoid, if a person is pregnant, to avoid handling uh, the litter box or maintaining the litter box. But for the most part, there's not really any risk in having a cat if a person is pregnant or uh, more likely if they're uh, subjected to some sort of immunosuppressive condition that makes their immune system more vulnerable. 
most of the time, if you avoid basic um, hygiene in, in terms of food preparation and proper cooking of meat, not allowing cats to eat raw meat, or if possible, not allowing them to hunt so that they have an opportunity to, to pick up toxoplasma, you can actually avoid it very easily. Um, and many times people, when they learn of some of the severity and the risks, um, overreact to it. When in reality, even though it's a significant disease, it is preventable very easily. And I want to emphasize what you said earlier. People who live with cats don't necessarily get infected with toxoplasmosis more often than those without cats, correct? That is true. That's what studies have shown. Any last comments for my listeners? Well, you know, there are a few things that I would want people to, to, no, to take note of when they're thinking about toxoplasma. You know, one of the things as we discussed is cats are the definitive host. So they're the only ones that can produce the infected form. And lots of people do get toxoplasma, but generally not from cats. And although cats um, are the only ones that they can get it, people get it from other sources that have to do with their own personal habits more than having the cat. And no one should shy away from having a cat simply because they have a health condition or pregnancy that, um, that requires them to take extra precautions because simple precautions can help them avoid the risk and they still get the benefit of having that companionship that you get from a cat. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused, because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Teenagers in sleep, it's a nightmare for many parents. But can getting your kids off to school later translate to improved grades? I'm Dr. Borenstein, and this is Dr. Beyond Call. Your teenager's brain runs on a different clock. While adults require anywhere from six and a half hours of sleep a night, a developing adolescent's brain needs eight and a half to nine and a half hours of sleep each night. Teens not only have a longer sleep requirement than we do as adults, but according to Dr. Helene Emsalem, director of the Center for Sleep and Wake Disorders, With puberty and the evolution of adulthood, they experience a gradual and progressive shift in the actual timing of the sleep period to a later start time and wake-up time. Studies corroborate that, indeed, allowing teens to sleep later can result in stronger test scores. But more importantly, it can translate into a less grumpier teenager around the house. 